Greetings Grapple fans, and welcome to the seventh installment of this year's Rerun the Rivalry. Is it lucky number seven? We'll wait and see to find out, but just to explain what it is, it's a series in which myself, you let me tell you something co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and your other let me tell you something co-host, Simon Cross, discuss every singles match in a particular promotion that are part of a major rivalry between two or more individuals in pro wrestling. We've gone for the classic Brian Danielson, Nigel McGuinness series in Ring of Honor between the years 2006 and 2009. There's been another development in the relationship and the dynamics of both of these wrestlers and how they're perceived by the Ring of Honor crowd. But Simon, first of all, let's explain where we are, when it is, and what's at stake. We are in New York, New York at the Manhattan Ballroom on the 23rd of February 2008. And we are at the Iron Anniversary Show, commonly known to people who don't keep track of wedding gifts as the 6th Anniversary Show. That was an Iron Man screaming to happen, but it didn't. See, people missed missed opportunity. And we're in a match for the Ring of Honor World Title with defending champion Nigel McGuinness and plucky hot Red hot baby face. Bit foreshadowing for his uh, grand coming out party at WrestleMania 30. Brian Danielson. <laughs> it's funny you make the observation as well, obviously, because this is the first time that Danielson is going in purely as a challenger. He's challenged Nigel for a title before, but he's also been a defending champion and a defending champion of the higher prestige world championship to Nigel McGuinness's pure championship. Now... Obviously, the big selling point of Ring of Honor has always been more than anything, or at least the way it was people who didn't know much about Ring of Honor, what they were told was, it's serious wrestling, it's not sports entertainment, it's all about what goes on in the ring. And that is still the case with this match for the most part. Out of all the seven matches we have covered so far in this, this is the one that is much more about the storyline and the characters and the development of the characters over the course of the match rather than it is the moves that they're doing in the ring, or even, like, how far they push themselves. Because as a physical match, like, a a sense of both men being drained utterly and and fighting at their top of their ability, this is not to that level of intensity as we saw in Unified or Driven, which are the two most famous matches. Yeah. You can argue even the... First two matches involving the pure title and then Danielson defending the world title on his own. But that is the nature of this match because essentially going into this, Nigel is now champion. And as is so often the case with so many promotion storylines that spend so much time building up a guy as a challenger to the belt and the belt being the end of that narrative. So often after that, there is this sense of them having nowhere to go. Yeah. And there's nothing to support them on because they've achieved what you were hoping for them to achieve. And then after that, if you're a defending champion, more often than not, you're about denying other people achieving what they're dreaming of achieving. Always, because WWE has always been about the champion being the top face, that's never been as much of a problem to them. All the way back to Bruno Sammartino. Yeah. And that's their default. That's why everyone going Cena wins lol. But really, that was... That would have been Samatino wins lol, Backlund wins lol, Hogan wins lol. Surely Hogan wins brother, but that's by the by. Yeah, 
But with WCW and ECW, and again with ROH, and latterly with AEW, so often when someone wins that title, afterwards there is a real sense of lost momentum. And very often the crowd quite quickly turns on them or becomes indifferent to them. Mm. Really, outside of his feud with CM Punk where he dropped the title, there was never that sense of Hangman Page ever being as exciting as champion in AEW than when he was the challenger for the year building up to it. Yeah, he never really had a great foil to go against. In terms of the talent he went against, he did. In terms of the storyline, there was never really anything built for him to go up against. There was no great evil. It was just blokes are there. Similarly, when Sting, whenever he won the title, and there were multiple times where they built it up as a chase of him finally toppling Ric Flair, finally toppling Lex Luger, finally toppling Hollywood Hogan, it seems like it's this great triumphant moment. But usually within less than six months, Sting's dropped the belts and has gone back to that role that he was, and very often would then just be, within a year, he's fighting for the US title, or something along those lines. Yeah. AJ Styles was basically repeating that multiple times in TNA. Uh, ECW, it was always really more about Shane Douglas and, and others, and building up a chase only for then the guy to either be injured like Rob Van Dam, or they didn't really give him much to do until he then had to leave the promotion in Taz. We're still seeing that with AEW, I think we'll continue to see that, because I think everyone's maybe expecting 2024 to be about the year of Swerve Strickland chasing the title. I wouldn't be surprised. And that would be really fun and really cool, and maybe at some point next year. We'll save some of this for 2023 in review. But again, when he wins that title, and I do think he will win the title within the next 18 months, there may again be a case of we don't know what to do with this person. Yeah. MJF, weirdly, it's been the other way around, that he started off as the heel and has then become the babyface, at least at time of recording. I'm still not convinced that it won't turn out that he is the devil during all this time. And the whole notion is it'll be like The Rock in the months between him losing the Intercontinental title and then winning the title at Survivor Series, where he never officially turns babyface, and then he just wins it and reveals he's the corporate champion. Mm. So that was really where Nigel was between him winning the title back in September or October of 2007 and where he is now. He's won the title, and everyone knows with the Ring of Honor, these guys, you've built them up so much, well, you're not going to make them drop the title immediately. Homicide, I guess, is the exception that proves the rule in that case. But Homicide was always like a person that could be put up and down the card, whereas Nigel is clearly, we're building him, building him, building him, because we want to build the promotion around him, like we did Brian Danielson, like we did initially with low-key, like we did... Well, Samoa Joe got developed with the belt as the belt went along. And so there's always that sense of a lack of peril with the first few defences with a champion with the belts at that point. Again, we saw that with Hangman Page. It was like, he's not going to lose to Adam Cole. So it's hard to be invested. And so when Nigel wins the belt, he's also cap- like finishing up other feuds that he had, like the one with Chris Hero. And Chris Hero gets his title shot from that survival of the fittest victory that I told you about that was quite a controversial story at the time. Yes. And he also beats Jay Briscoe. He's just doing that thing where they give them guys that he can beat but get a good match out of. But again, there's that lack of excitement around them potentially losing the belt. Now, you can still work around that. Do you remember how much people were complaining going into the MJF Danielson Iron Man match? It was like, everyone knows MJF's going to win. But they still, because of how good they both are in the ring, had us truly invested towards the end. 
They had us believe, definitely. The more, con- the, the bigger concern was could MJF do that kind of match? Guess how you'd port that into the McGuinness situation is could McGuinness be the champion and could that character work in, in that scenario? Well, again, it's always that problem of the champion is so often that figure that means something to another person. There's very few Rocky films where Rocky's the defending champion throughout it all. Like, he loses the belt at Rocky Three early on, and then the rest of the build-up is going back to fight it. Rocky Four, he's not even fighting for the belt. He gives up the belt in order to go to Russia and fight Drago. So Drago represents the loss of his friend. So again, it's something he's fighting for, fighting against. Yeah. But my point is... In these narratives, you're climbing up the hill. There's films about people climbing up mountains. There's not many films about what a person does once they reach the top of the mountain. (laughs) That's not what the majority of free solo is. Yeah. It's not him standing on the top taking pictures. So then where do you go with Nigel? So Nigel goes in as a babyface, and he hasn't turned heel early on. Whereas Danielson essentially turned heel almost immediately after winning the title with the with the matches with Roderick Strong. But as we said, the way he was presented, there was always kind of an ambiguity to him. You can cheer him if you want, but more likely than not, he's going to work as a heel in most of these matches. Yeah. Nigel's going in at the start, defending them as the, as the babyface. And this is the pivotal moment. He starts to accumulate injuries early on and has to be pulled from a few events. And that starts to piss off the crowd anyway, because obviously people like Danielson famously working through the shoulder injury. So his matches are getting tepid responses, and him then not being able to defend the title due to injuries plays into a narrative with the fans that he's not champion material. Yeah. You can book him as that, and we kind of went with that story up to a point, but now that we're seeing him as that, then it's not really what we're buying. He's a B-plus player. Not, I guess maybe. I guess, but it's more just in comparison to Danielson. Yeah, yeah. Not in the um, authority's eyes, a la the Daniel Bryan story, but in the fans' eyes, because he's like, he's not what we demand a Ring of Honor champion to be. This, This style, this ethos that's been crafted he doesn't measure up to that well also and it gets pointed out by the crowd in this match at one point there was also criticisms at the time of the increasing one-dimension nature of nigel's matches and nigel's offense being so much built around the lariats he's got the jawbreaker lariats he's got the standing lariats he's got the lariat when they're up in the ropes He's got the combo knee one in the corner. Yeah. And when he finally won against Morishima, it was with one of those jawbreaker about to fall out of the ring, then hits him lariat. And so when he does finally use a lariat about the midway point of the match, I don't know if you noticed it, some of the crowds start chanting same old shit. Yeah. So there's obviously already these things accumulating about him, whereas obviously Danielson, his whole thing is that he's just the best wrestler in the world due to his versatility. That he can wrestle any kind of match. He's he's able to do all these different styles, and he's just like the complete perfect wrestler. Whereas Nigel McGuinness is very much just of one track, big man, power, forceful, kind of like in the mold of Ricky Chosho or Kensuke Sasaki in New Japan, that sort of strong style focus mm. but they didn't really have a name for it at that point in in the u.s you mentioned the versatility obviously on brian of brian on display we're seeing him for the first time in this series that we're covering 
wrestle as um, white meat babyface, basically getting USA chants and stuff. We get some like weird Triple H stroke Harley Race style like knee lifts at one point. I say weird. It's not a weird move. It's just weird to see Danielson do it. He's working the crowd, but he's not like doing all the let's go taunts kind of thing. He's just feeding off their energy rather than creating a negative energy to feed off of which he has done in previous matches in this series he's feeding off like the energy in a positive way to deal with that basically this this knobhead that he's got across the ring well this is the most explicitly danielson is of the face of the match mcginnis is the heel of the match that we've had in all the run like the first match it was leaning more like 60 40 danielson's the baby face and the second match towards the end straight, it was like McGuinness finding this new strength within him. So it was maybe more 40-60 Danielson. Yeah. Then Unified is obviously the McGuinness is now babyface. And that's where we've gone since then. Driven, Danielson was like more aggressive, I suppose. And I said he was like kind of like midway. Like he was 97 mm. Austin form of babyface. The way that he worked in Driven and then with the match with Morishima. And the reason that he works in this way, because there was an angle before this match. So just to get back to where we were. So I'm going to his first few defenses. Then he can't defend for a while because of injuries to his arm, I think. And again, it's like, well, if you're going to throw all just lariats, maybe that's your own fault was probably what <laughs> was saying on the message boards. So then he comes back for his big final battle match against Austin Aries, who's obviously been positioned as the other top challenger for the title along with Danielson during that title celebration and let's remember like Danielson was a complete dickhead heel in that moment yeah and then where we end up just a few months down the road when they finally have that match that they tease both with that angle and then the survival of the fittest match where Danielson's full on chicken shit heel at the end and McGuinness's virtuous baby face during that match and a lot of people i think cite that as like mcginnis's best non-brian danielson match in ring of honor one of the great matches of ring of honor history as well very early on into the match mcginnis is on the outside and austin aries does his tope and i've always said like austin aries if he weren't such a dickhead he could have very easily been in my like top 10 favorite wrestlers ever yeah because he's one of those guys like after bret hart i think that's just in the execution of their moves is absolutely incredible like he's one of those guys that makes me go crazy for him performing particular like he's got a couple of really cool elbow drops and that's all he's doing an elbow drop and one of the things he always did that i loved is his topes he goes obviously doesn't help that he's probably five foot seven and really doesn't want you to realize that when he does his topes to the outside, usually when most wrestlers do their topes, and even Bret Hart's guilty of this, they go between the second and third ropes. Yeah. And very often that means that when they're landing, it's very hard for their opponent to catch them unless they're far away back. Danielson actually and McGuinness measure it really well when they do that in the first match of this series that then leads to the finish of the match. And what Austin Aries does instead is that he goes between the bottom rope and the second rope. And that means that he's essentially exactly in the place you want to be for the opponent to be able to catch you whilst you keep, like, a straight horizontal line across the ring. Yeah. So, like I said, Bret Hart, again, because he's, like, four or five inches taller than Austin Aries, so it's harder for him to do that. When he did his tope, he would do it between the second and the third ropes. And I remember he did that at the opening of one of his matches against Jean-Pierre Lafitte 
in WWF, and it's as close as he comes to being in Botchamania, really, and I think it was in Botchamania that I've seen it, because when he comes diving in, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, PCO, whatever you want to call him, he's not the tallest guy either, and he was too close to the ring, so he puts his arms up to try and catch Brett, but he can barely right. get to him. Brett nearly lands on his head in the in, in the aftermath of that. So Ares comes low and hard. <laughs> no! They also, what makes it scarier is that McGuinness does the spot with his back turned, like he doesn't see it coming. And he goes, smacks into the barricade, and he goes head first. And it's really gruesome to watch. Well, not gruesome, but it's really nasty to watch. Because he gets like a big cut just above his eyebrow that caught that needed 14 stitches to close after the match. And he's immediately concussed. And you can see he's so out of it in that moment. Yeah. And powers through, has the match, one of the best matches ever. But again, it's another injury, and McGuinness piles up more injuries, and he's more about talking about him taking time off. And again, the story comes, maybe he's just too fragile to carry the weight of the promotion belt on his shoulders in the way that Brian Danielson's been able to. <laughs> the irony of him having brittle Brian recently, then. <laughs> so, at the start of the show, or early on in the show, he comes out with the belt... And basically takes the crowd's task for not respecting him, implying that he's weak and he's fragile. You know, he's like, how dare I avoid putting my own health at risk? And that accuses Brian Danielson of being a dangerous wrestler and says that he will vacate the title rather than put his health at risk by going up against someone as dangerous as Danielson. So that pulls Danielson out and he's like, don't you dare, don't you dare. And it's one of those things, it's, it's a double turn, Matt. It's Austin, yeah. it's Austin Brett at WrestleMania 13 and all the other matches that have tried to do that and have failed since then. <laughs> the only one that always comes to my mind when they do that is that Del Rio-Ziggler match, which is built around a concussion, actually. Yes. And obviously some people have that opinion coming out of the Strickland Adam Page match but we'll leave that we'll leave that till uh, the first of the bulk recorded five five stars because that is a that is a stay tuned yes and Danielson says you cannot be that person you can't ruin the lineage of this title by vacating it and running away and so Nigel says you're too dangerous and he's got a point. He's ended up multiple matches with Danielson unconscious. Yeah. And obviously, because this is the concussion episode, essentially, there is more of an awareness now coming at this point of the disfe- of the dangerous nature of concussions because it was the Chris Benoit thing had happened the year before. Yep. And still at this point, I think it was more associated with Royd Rage, but Nowinski, I think, I don't know if by this time they pointed out that Chris Benoit had the brain of an 80-year-old Alzheimer's sufferer, was the way it was described. And whether they'd started to implement the no-chair shots to the head, Mm. I think it must have done by then in WWE. They obviously had their wellness policy in, in effect at that point as well, with drug testing and the like. But but still, the weird thing is that it's played up as like saying, oh, I've got a concussion is chicken shit. It's like it's a heated, <sighs> cowardly thing to do, to not fight through a concussion. It's, it's a weird space, especially at, at, at that point in history, where Nigel McGuinness is quite rightly, like, as you mentioned, talking about like you know his, his health and well-being. But because it's a combat sport, or, well, it's presented as a combat sport... You're right, it does come across as, oh, he's just whining. It's like, oh, it's not my fault, he's soft. They alluded to it, and we are referencing Hangman a lot here, in the Hangman Moxley storyline, where basically John Moxley was like, 
it's not really my fault that you ended up with a concussion. This is what we do. <laughs> and with attitudes and look, with CTE and everything and how the the level of knowledge we're getting in, in the gap between 2008 when this match takes place and 15 years later when we're talking about it, attitudes have changed rapidly. Yeah, but we're still not where we should be. No, 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 we're not. And it's not just in pro wrestling either. You look at how Antonio Brown acts after that hit he took when he was a Pittsburgh Steeler. If, if you're telling me that's not CTE, then I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you've reached that conclusion. <laughs> so Danielson says, you've got to defend the title against me tonight. And Nigel said, I will only defend it if you agree that neither of us goes for the head. And that becomes a gentleman's agreement. And this is another example, I think, of the brilliance of Danielson in particular. That so many wrestlers, when they're given a handicap in their match, something they've got to work around. They try and be cute, they try to be clever, or they just don't put as much thought into it. Whereas Danielson, just as he got the best matches possible out of the pure wrestling rules, he gets the most excitement and emotional connection in how he plays him trying to work within the confines that McGuinness has set for him to get this title match. Yeah. And so it's him hitting a suplex and then Nigel accusing him of not following their agreement. But it's like... Well, Having a paddy. Yeah. and fo- I'm, I, I'm offended by that. And... <laughs> oh, Christ! <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> you never do. You and your kind, you never do. <laughs> anyway... So then McGuinness then tries to again get out of defending the title. So when the referee says, literally you hear him say, "There's, n- I'm sorry, Nigel, there's nothing I can do about it. Because it is a gentleman's agreement, but it's not a rule within the laws of the match. Yeah. And also, the back suplex he takes, yeah, there's head, but it, it's more back than it is head. He's he's being a bit of a baby. Well, that's the point. But he's used, he wants an out, he wants an escape. From yeah. it. And he's looking for it as much as possible because first he engages him on the map with the map wrestling. And again, it's a funny one of those things of just showing how great both these guys are at these different types of wrestling. And you wonder, is this what the whole match is going to be? Much like the Survival of Fittest match was essentially like a technical wrestling almost exhibition. Yeah. And there's so much. I mean, there's so many spots that are basically classic world of sports stuff, mm. even with the, like, the arm choke thing that they both get. And again, when McGuinness, for the first time, is able to hit the reversal and apply it himself, immediately, that's like the crowd gauging it. There's like smattering of booze, and then just everyone takes to it, and so now it's like, this is it. He hasn't officially done it yet, but in our eyes, he is the heel. Yeah. And Danielson is the virtuous babyface. Again, just how we've got to hear from that Survival of the Fittest match in just a few months, it's pretty amazing and a sign of them. It obviously wasn't what they had in mind with how they booked the ending of that Survival of the Fittest match. They probably wanted it to be Nigel maybe getting finally his win as a babyface champion over Danielson in the sixth anniversary and it being completely clean as a whistle. But that's not where the fans and that's not where the fates have aligned them. And I think that this is also, whilst Danielson now is being restricted and working within those restrictions... What I got with the sense of this whole match is that this was Nigel with a massive weight taken off of his shoulders because in the time between Unified and now, where he's had his babyface turn, I think there's always been a sense of Nigel as the purely virtuous heart of the lion babyface 
It's something he can do because he is a tough guy, a guy who fights through adversity and is just a really good wrestler. So he can do fired up and all that. But it always felt like a bit of a performance. That was like the close thing I had to criticisms, especially of the Unified match, that it a lot of it didn't necessarily yet ring true. That it wasn't like McGuinness finding it within himself. It was McGuinness doing the things that a fired up babyface is supposed to do. Right, I'm with you. Whereas this is McGuinness as a bitter, angry man <laughs> lashing out at the fans. And I'm not saying that that's what he is as a person, but I definitely think that the sense I get from all the interviews and everything that I've ever seen of McGuinness is that he's always been kind of a half empty glass kind of person. Yeah. Colt Banner, when he interviewed him on The Art of Wrestling, he was saying you were kind of seen as this guy who would always talk about the negatives when they'd be on the road, what what could happen if they don't make it. That would always be in his mind. And similarly, I've seen footage, I only saw like the trailer of it, when he was on the Kevin Steen show. And I think that was when he was doing his last of the McGuinness documentary, that he was saying, you've done so many great things, you should be proud and not look on your career as a failure. And he says, but I do. Yeah. And so that despondency and that level of frustration that McGuinness seems to feel, I think that inherent almost sadness that he had at least at that point in his life this new heel role allows him to take it out on these fans that i think did affect him psychologically by suddenly turning on him after he'd done all the good things that a good performance as a good baby face should give you you could almost say the fans are fickle simon fickle (laughs) and i was saying that the way that both these guys play this match is almost an inversion of of the epic encounter match, which really was just the Brian Danielson show with McGuinness as almost an interchangeable opponent. Now, it needs to be Brian Danielson that McGuinness is having this match with, I think, because of the story that we've seen through these ones. Yes. But it is McGuinness that is leading this match from start to finish. Essentially, it's all about him, and Danielson is the supporting player of this story, of this narrative. Uh, would you agree with me on, on that assessment? Yeah, I do. If you look at how Brian's behaved in, in previous matches, winding McGuinness up after the bell, getting out of it by the skin of his teeth, and now, like you say, so soon after the, the resolution of the McGuinness chase, the, the script's completely flipped through the story of this match. Nigel's effectively everything, the, the antithesis of uh, everything he strived to become. The moment where... And the commentator points this out, and obviously I wasn't aware of the storylines at the time, but they go, even Roderick Strong is out with Austin Aries to go, no, pack it in, go back and defend this properly. Yeah, because McGuinness hits the ref, the second referee comes in to replace him and automatically disqualifies McGuinness, so McGuinness sells to the wankers in the crowd, there's your title match that you insisted I have, you obviously never really wanted to go through with it. Danielson was getting too much of an upper hand in the early stages. Almost wonder if he baited him into doing that back suplex so that he could give himself an out. Yeah, yeah, you could see it. You could see it. I think it would have been more effective if it had been more than just four guys that were out there waiting for him. Especially since McGuinness has like five inches on almost all of them in size. I mean, you mentioned obviously Austin Aries being the other opponent for McGuinness and... We've made allusions to his height. Having Austin Aries surrounded by Owens, uh, sorry, Steen at the time, uh, Strong, and even Delirious, it's not a great look for Austin Aries, is it? Because there are famously matches where it does seem like 
if you read it, like, it seems like it, whenever there's a world title match going on, pretty much everyone else is watching from the curtains. And then if a title change happens, that's their cue to come out. And as I said in one of the recent ones, that's Morishima's cue to just start wrecking people. Yeah. <laughs> no one briefed me! <laughs> You know that bit in the raid where he's just in the toilet store, just people coming towards him. <laughs> Mr. Simpson, please, it's just an act. That guy's stealing the Krusty Burgers! Attention, let us all come out and celebrate Morishima winning the title. Not on my shift! <laughs> Morishima 10, Ring of Honor 8. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine Morishima creating a funk like that as well. <laughs> anyway, there's probably as many moves as before, but it is not about the moves. And as I've said, there's like a couple of high risk spots. But funnily enough, they don't do the super dangerous spots that we got in previous ones. When they did the headbutt spot, it even seemed like it was a less explicitly like dangerous. It seemed like it was more safely worked. And I wonder if that was also. McGuinness's experience of concussions yeah. at that point and, and after his retirement McGuinness was maybe the most vocal proponent of non-blows to the head, no bleeding because he'd suffer from hepatitis which he wonders if that was from a blood situation. And you see that funnily enough, because there is blood in this match as well and it comes from seemingly the Tower of London spot where he does it again it's one of those great ones where he improvises around it where Danielson avoids being hit with the Tower of London in the traditional way, but then when he's out on the outside of the ring, McGuinness is able to use the height situation to automatically put him into the Tower of London. And they both come out bleeding slightly, McGuinness more so than Danielson. And so it doesn't look like it was a deliberate... But it's a funny little coincidence that it's not. But you would also think at this point McGuinness is smart enough not to do a deliberate hard way cut like he did at Driven. He ain't no Lesnar. Yeah, it just seems like it's a fortunate coincidence that it must have been when they did that move that their heads collided. If you look, he can't do it straight out at a 45 degree angle. Obviously, he does it because he's got all the ring space and he's doing it from a corner. Because he's doing it basically parallel to an obstacle, that being the barrier, he has to line him up on a slant. And I'm wondering if that's how that situation got caused. They were doing it in a very less space than they usually do that move in. But it's one of those things that was just a lucky accident, we'll assume, for the most part, that feeds into the match itself, because there's a moment where McGuinness genuinely did get hurt in the head, but he's like, oh, I could win this match, so I'll power through. It's like people that are down injured, and then when they suddenly see, oh, we're in attack, oh, he's recovered, it's a miracle! It's like when Brian's clutching his eye later on, there's, there's a lot of that. I'm like, oh, come on! Do something about it, ref. And it's like, well, come on now. <laughs> well, that obviously is also leading into... McGuinness obviously is coming into this with a history of concussions, head injuries. And Danielson's coming into it with the knowledge of his eye injury sustained at the hands of Morishima. Who wore a patch and wrestled through, unlike what McGuinness has been doing. And I'm trying to remember now, I think it was a year after this that he had the match with Morishima where he got his revenge. So we still... That's like an underlying thing that they'll still come back to. But again, it's just pointing out this is full-on heel. McGuinness ruthlessly hitting headbutts, doing what was supposed to be a gentleman's agreement that they don't do because he finds that opening and that opportunity. And then 
even if it's an accident the first time that Danielson's eyes hit, when he then does the downward elbows that Danielson has literally just stopped himself from doing, yeah, he pauses and then not only does he do another deliberate downward elbow, as they say in the booking, he aims it directly at Danielson's previously injured eye. Yeah. So it's like, within the rules of what they'd done before, yes, Danielson was ruthless, but it was fully legal what he'd done, and he'd knocked him into unconsciousness, but that was like, them's the rules that we lay out. And what we'd agreed to, yeah. Yeah, whereas with McGuinness, it's like we agreed to the exact opposite, and because you're not doing it, I've been fortunate to get myself into this position. So it's like, Danielson in that moment had done it, he would have knocked McGuinness out the same way that he did at Driven, and the same way that he did at Unified, which were their other two big matches before then. And similarly to Driven, he then puts him in the submission hold to give himself, I guess, the illusion of it being a submission victory over Danielson, but obviously the implication is that Danielson was essentially out. It was cold before it was locked in, yeah. And one of the other things I wanted to point out is that I think the way they booked it as well was to give McGuinness enough out that you can say within the logic of his storyline, he is still the hero. Because Danielson had always been ruthless to him, so he's been ruthless back. Nigel McGuinness thinks that Danielson opened it up with the headshot with the suplex and the other stuff that's gone throughout the match. And so he's just giving him back what he's already done to him in the past. And Danielson not having the... Is just in McGuinness's eyes, I guess, just not having the ruthlessness of it. And he probably sees Danielson as a hypocrite already, so he's like, whatever. This is just turnabout's fair play in his eyes. And they give him another virtuous babyface, not virtue, not babyface, but like the fact that they do what is so frequently the babyface spot, where they're in a submission hold or a sleeper hold or whatever, and they do the raise the arms three times and he keeps his arm up. Like, that is almost always a babyface spot. So that, to me, is like booking it so that if you're going to look through this through the eyes of, say, I did of Bret Hart in 1997, where it was the fans that had turned heel, (laughs) the fans booing someone, showing the willingness to keep going, despite being in this submission hold that's taken him, that's beaten him in the past... Is I think that's deliberate layering of like yeah. Don't forget this guy's awesome, and really at this this is the start of McGuinness becoming the defending champion the way that Danielson was in that he's a prick and he's the fans don't like him, but he gets the results because he's booked in a series of matches with guys like Kevin Steen, Claudio Castagnoli, other figures where they're the babyface trying to overcome the mountain that he is now. And ultimately, McGuinness does come out on top, essentially, mostly through fair and square means, in the same way that Danielson did through most of his title defences. Yeah. So, it's almost like, you know, how they you know, said, like, when you become a babyface, you lose 20 points in your IQ. <laughs> oh, yes. This is like McGuinness becoming that complete wrestler and being the ruthless person you need to in order to defend the title. It's like we're saying the lessons that Okada was gaining was through how to keep a title, not how to win it, because he does that super quickly. Yeah. And so for this, it's like McGuinness believing that in order to become as dominant a champion as Brian Danielson is, he has to be every bit as ruthless as Danielson was during his title defense. By Danielson be- becoming more of a virtuous babyface, maybe he lost some IQ points, or he he went into the trap that Nigel set at the start of the show. But it's also that sense of was. But Danielson was always true to himself as well, I suppose. Yeah, when you handicap yourself with principles, it does make life difficult. What a mistake! No. <laughs> and that's why we've had Tories in power for most of the past hundred. Uh... <laughs> 
So, yeah, this is the most layered story. Like, this is the kind of match that you could have seen. Like, it's as close as a WWE match as these guys have come to. And I can understand why, to some, this is, like, their favourite match that they have. Like, if you think wrestling should be more of a complete story, maybe. Oh, yeah. Rather than an exhibition of the most exciting moves and kickouts and everything. Then I can see why it's your favourite. It's not... I wouldn't put it quite at the level of driven and unified as I would... But I would say it's, like, as a range for me, if those two matches are four and three-quarter stars to five stars, this is four and a half to four and three-quarter stars for me. Uh, where would you sit on that front? I'd, I'd put it in the fours. Uh, I like the storytelling. Um, I like how it's different. I think one of the things I struggled with, both in our five-star series to catch up uh, to the present day, and a little bit in Rerun the Rivalry, uh, season one, was the similarity of the matches um variety is the spice of life so this one this one will stick out for me more than some of the others but it isn't as good as them if that makes sense yeah some other points i remember is um mcginnis is the one that says i have till five like danielson doesn't even say it once in this match even when he has the opportunity to again playing up that he's being more of the baby face like the virtuous Maybe in a way you could argue Danielson himself is maybe a bit deluded about what kind of champion he actually was. (laughs) In his his mind's eye, this is the guy that he was throughout his whole title reign. Narcissists have a very uh, interesting view of reality, don't they? And also, I forget, I was really annoyed I forgot to mention this in the the Unified match. Because Danielson does little references and, and homages, but it's not necessarily him doing it to the guy he's against. In the Unified match, I don't know if you noticed at one point, this is going far back now for us, but... I didn't make it at the time. He did that little arm behind the back self hammerlock pose that was obviously the default pose of a uh, Lord Stephen Regal and William Regal yes. back in the day. The guy that he wears maroon tights in honor of tribute off, to and tribute yep. to. And in this match, he hits his Brit wrestling opponent with the finishing move of his other great Brit wrestling rival, the Chaos Theory German Suplex. At one point, really good. at um execution of it as well obviously that is one of my favorite moves in all of wrestling ever and the way doug williams does it is just a work of art oh yeah but danielson comes close as well with that other spots danielson again getting to do the dives to the outside and hitting it fully this time and did you notice he also got it by reversing the way that mcginnis had done his little rebound lariat from the apron to the uh, in Driven. Yep. And that knocked Danielson into the crowd, and then McGuinness hit the dive. This time, Danielson saw it coming, sent him into the crowd, and hit the dive fully this time. No raised chair by McGuinness or anything at that point. Layered. Like an onion. Or a lasagna. Hmm. But yeah, just seeing McGuinness play in the crowd, even more so than like the way that Danielson played them at Unified. Maybe, this is maybe McGuinness's best performance, actually. Out of all the matches we've had so far. Obviously, I think everyone will think Unified because Unified was the star-making turn. But that's more the hometown crowd yeah. favourite. You've kind of always got that going for you anyway, even if you don't put out a great performance. You know, like, David Boy Smith didn't give a 10 out of 10 performance at SummerSlam 92 for obvious <laughs> crack-related reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but Nigel, I think, has become a better performer Although, as I said, the criticism at this time was his over-reliance on the Lariats. But this is just McGuinness's... You know, it would have been great to see McGuinness get to do this kind of character work in a WWE ring. Or or, or or even, he didn't really get to do much of it in a TNA ring either, but we'll cover that at a later point. Yeah. Yeah, I just love that Danielson was doing, like, 
punches to the stomach and kicks and knees and the elbows. And what I like about that is just that sense of the reason he goes for the head is because going for the stomach doesn't actually do as much damage, at least within the logic of this kind of world of wrestling, because you can stay up and get a, get away from that. And Danielson similarly, I mean, maybe if he'd have then gone for it, if they'd have built that up throughout the whole match and he'd gone for like an abdominal stretch at the end, because he did have like an abdominal stretch Boston Crab kind of finishing submission hold that he used a few times, uh, I think before he won the world title. I think that was how he beat Austin Aries at Survival of the Fittest. That could have played it up more, but again, it's just Danielson trying to figure out a new way of beating him. Kind of reminiscent of when, when Shawn Michaels did that match with Randy Orton where he couldn't do the sweet chin music. He was busting out submission holds as a different way of yeah. winning it. And what I like about that is that then when they did the uh, strike exchange where he's hitting McGuinness in the stomach, he's not no-selling it, but he's kind of semi-no-selling it because those ones aren't having as much impact on McGuinness as if Danielson had laid him out with like a forearm yeah. or or a you know, a headbutt. That's the thing. Body shots charge interest, but they do it at a very slow rate. <laughs> the fact he didn't really like implement a body submission is mainly because he got so wound up by McGuinness. So he wants to hit him, but he, he he's holding himself to his code. So that's why he's hitting body shots. But he, he did. He just planned to generally out wrestle him. He maybe naively didn't think he'd have to like rely on the t- like the torso work so much. Oh yeah. At one point, I did hear someone in the audience yell out, "Yeah, English bastard!" when McGuinness went out out of the oh, ring. That was lovely. In a very clear to me Scottish brogue, or at least I thought it was. But then a few moments later, someone else yelled out, or maybe the same person yelled out, "Do it for the Irish!" Look out, Itchy, he's Irish. Do they think Danielson's? I mean, is he Irish? I don't know. Another good spot in the match is where Nigel goes for a traditional headstand move in the corner and usually when Danielson hits a counter that it's either a charging drop kick or in one of the previous matches a running headbutt into McGuinness's head as he's balancing on the top turnbuckle but obviously they can't do it this time so instead Danielson hits him with a drop kick to his midsection um, which is a really high there's a really impressive height that he got on that and he's you know he's not like Okada he hasn't got the six foot four frame to make a drop kick that high a bit easier there's an element of flexing in that. It's like, all right, I'll jump even higher and hurt you then. <laughs> so, yeah, nothing more left to say here. I think this is a great match. I would say it is the third best match out of the ones we've watched so far. And I would put it in that high recommend area. This is one of the matches you should really seek out. If you're listening to this podcast series for recommendations of the matches, this is a definite required viewing one. Uh, do you have anything to add to that, Simon? No, not really. It's just to highlight the difference of it to what we've seen before. A difference stands out. So so the dynamics of this rivalry has shifted yet again. And we're on to another match later on in the year. Simon, where are we? When are we? And what is or isn't at stake in this match? It is a match taking place on the 11th of October 2008. Lorcan alluded to it there are no stakes this is a non-title match which is interesting there are no physical stakes obviously there's pride and what have you and we are coming from the country where pride resides both bushido and the mma promotion in pride itself we're coming from tokyo japan from the and i apologize in advance i don't know if we have any japanese listeners probably not after my series of pronunciations over the years from the differ Arioki, and i'm begging i got that right but i don't know <laughs> and what is the event called simon battle of the best 
For the second time, Ring of Honor are holding a weekend of shows in Japan with the help of their promotions in arms, Noah and Dragon Gate. And Danielson and McGuinness wrestle in their third different continent for Ring of Honor. And I might be their fourth overall. I'll know for certain in the next episode. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with other things that have uh, originated from Japan and some weird stuff has originated from Japan in the past, how can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of former Ring of Honor world champions that appeared to confront McGuinness that went on to WWE. E. My name is Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A at the start of Agreement, N for the end at the end of Gentlemen. And whilst there was a Gentleman's Agreement at the start of this match, it was not followed through by all parties towards the end. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing to say at this point except I'm your Gentleman, Lorcan Mullen. And I am your Agreement, Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something, and I hope you'll stay with us as we continue to rerun the rivals. So many light years to go. Face to be fair.